Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tonight, the costs of the COVID-19 lockdowns and the warnings our governments brushed aside. I'll be joined from California by Dr. Jayanta Bhattacharya, a leading critic of the COVID-19 lockdown policy. He'll be describing the frightening tactics employed by members of Joe Biden's administration to destroy his reputation. I'll be asking Dr. Bhattacharya why the West, including Australia, tried to fight COVID-19 with authoritarian lockdown techniques pioneered by communist China. I'm Nick Cater and this is Battleground coming to you every week on ADH-TV via the dedicated ADH-TV app on your smartphone or smart TV. Also tonight, as Australians join the British in mourning our late Queen, we'll bring you some exclusive polling showing rising support for her son, King Charles III, as Australia's head of state. And I'll be discussing the monarchy's future in Australia and other matters with my regular guest, Amanda Stoker. As we record this episode, Queen Elizabeth lies in state at the Palace of Westminster. Her son, Charles III, is nearing the end of his first week as King of Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand and other Commonwealth realms. It's a moment many of us hoped would never come. Yet, for sadly, for others, They've been longing for her death for years, hoping for what they thought would be their inheritance. The radical transformation of Australia from a constitutional monarchy to a republic. In the weeks since the Queen's death, some advocates of the Republic have shamed themselves beyond belief. They've cared little for the sensitivities of their fellow citizens, many of whom find themselves unexpectedly in grief for a woman who has reigned, for people like me, for the entirety of our lives. Adam Bant's stocks of human decency are evidently low, judging from his Twitter activity this week. Just four hours and 57 minutes after the Queen's death was announced, Bant could restrain himself no longer. Quote, rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth II, he began on his tweets before opening up full blast. Now Australia must move forward. We need a treaty with First Nations people and we need to become a republic. Bant is poison to the Republican cause. He represents a new band, brand of woke republicanism, one that's emerged from postmodern, postlogical sludge of critical race theory and anti-colonialism. Republicans of the 1980s and 90s, like Paul Keating, for instance, were driven by a sense of pride for a nation that was overflowing with confidence. The new Republican movement is driven by shame and national self-loathing. The old Republicans simply wanted to draw a clearer line, as they saw it, between Australia and Britain. They wanted to enhance Australia's reputation as a confident middle power going its own way in Asia, 
by making a clear statement of independence from Europe. The woke Republicans, however, want a divorce not just from Britain, but our entire history. Green Senator Marine Faruqi tweeted, I cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonised people. We are reminded of the urgency of treaty with First Nations, justice and reparations for British colonies and becoming a republic. Well, it's a point of view, I suppose, albeit one that most Australians would find ignorant and absurd. If Senator Faruqi got to write the referendum question, its chances of success, I'd say, were zero. The old Republicans at least tried to compromise by presenting what they like to call minimal change. The new ones, however, want it all and then some. They want us to surrender unconditionally to their divisive anti-Western dogma and declare, declare everything this country has achieved in the last 234 years evil. Well, mainstream Republicans could do without this noise as they prepare to seize what they think is their moment, the accession of a king they presumably, they, they, they arrogantly presumed would be unpopular to the throne. Australian Republican movement chairman Peter Fitzsimon said five years ago that, quote, when King Charles inherits his mum's job, it's on, close quote. We shall see. The Republicans are misreading the mood of the public, not to mention the Australian Constitution, if they imagine the only reason, the only thing standing in the way of a, of a republic was a popular queen. Clearly, they've failed to learn the lesson of the 1999 referendum. Australians won't vote for an arrangement that transfers power to the political class. They would prefer an apolitical head of state with the power to keep politicians in their place. They want a head of state who is above the political fray, one who protects their interests, the voters, not the interests of the people they vote for. In other words, they want a system that works much like a constitutional monarchy, which, as Robert Menzies observed, is the most democratic form of government known to humankind. And yes, they naturally want an Australian head of state, someone who's proved their loyalty to this country, willing to serve it unconditionally. Somebody like David Hurley, perhaps, our current Governor-General, who was born in Wollongong as a son of an Illawarra steel worker and then served his country in the armed forces for 40 years. Indeed, 11 of the 12 Governor-Generals who served over the past half century were born in Australia. There's a short phrase that Republicans really need to understand before they blunder any further down this path. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now to an exclusive survey conducted by Compass Polling for ADH-TV. It suggests that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's got a lot of work to do if he wants us to support his plan to turn Australia into a republic. Back in January, Compass asked Australians do you think Australia should become a republic with an Australian head of state or should the monarch be retained as head of state? Well, back then, 56% of Australians in total favoured a republic and 44% were in favour of returning the monarch. The Republicans assumed that support for a republic would grow even further with the death of the Queen, but of course they were wrong. This week we asked the same question again and the results have been reversed. Today, 57% want to retain the current system and only 43% are in favour of changing to a republic. The Republicans' prediction that Charles would be an unpopular king has proved to be unfounded. 
It turns out that 76% of Australians believe Charles will be a good monarch. They're the kind of approval ratings that any prime minister would envy, I suggest. So if Anthony Albanese is wise, he should think again about a proposal for a second referendum on the Republic. When we ask people whether there should be a second refer referendum and whether Australia should become a republic, 20% of Australians said no, flat no, never. 18% said there shouldn't be one anytime soon. And 27% said there shouldn't be one in the next five years. So in total, 65% of Australians, that's roughly two thirds of the country, don't want a referendum on this question until the end of Anthony Albanese's second term, if he's lucky enough to get one, at the very earliest. Which begs the question, why do we have an assistant minister for the Republic when an overwhelming majority of Australians have zero appetite for change? Well, this seems a good point to bring in my Menzies Research Centre colleague, Amanda Stoker, who joins me from Brisbane. Amanda, the Australian Republican movement announced this week that it's suspending its campaign for a republic until after the Queen's burial in London next week. So shows a modicum of respect, I suppose. But based on the polling we've just seen, they'd be wise to call off their campaign until 2027 at the least. It does suggest that there's been a real surge of appreciation in the Australian community not just for Her Majesty, um, but also for the enduring importance of the institution. And that really is um, at the heart of what the Republican movement seeks to undermine. It is really good to see many Australians um, demonstrating in those numbers, not just a, an affinity for certain personalities, but an understanding that the value of constitutional monarchy is its ability to provide peace and stability that transcends politics. It has been such an advantage for Australia and we'd be foolish to give it away. Well, I think they made the mistake of thinking King Charles was going to be, you know, to put it crudely, a bit of a dud. Uh, but uh, it turns out he's much more popular than we expected. 75% of Australians expect he will perform his duties well. Only 33% describe him as weak or out of touch. That level of support would have surprised me two weeks ago, but probably not having seen him rise to the challenge in office. What do you think? Look, I think people will, um, at least in part, give him the benefit of the doubt in these early days. But one thing's for sure, he has had a long apprenticeship learning from the best there is. And so we have reason, I think, as a nation to be optimistic that he will exceed expectations. Um, he's had plenty of time to think about the way he might handle the challenges of this important position. And the early signs are that he is respecting the conventions and traditions of it. Um, long may that continue. And that's important. We just remember, of course, that his primary role is King of Australia. I, I gather he also has a minor role, part-time job, filling in as king for various other countries, but we need to think of him as the king of Australia. Republicans often talk about this so-called minimalist republic model, where you simply remove references to the crown from the constitution and allow cabinet to appoint a governor general, which effectively is what it does now, albeit with the, uh, the approval of the monarch, and then allow everything to carry on happily. Now, as a constitutional lawyer and a former Commonwealth assistant attorney general, do you think it would really be as simple as that? 
Look, I think there's a significant cultural shift that comes even with what they call that minimalist model. But there are practical challenges associated with getting that kind of a model up. Um, a referendum requires a majority of people in a majority of states to support the change. And with Australians being quite sensible, practical people, they would be, I think, quite rightly asking, well, what's the point of all of this if all you're doing is um, changing some window dressing rather than substance? Um, that if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of approach was successful last time. And this polling suggests that um, Australians haven't veered too wildly away from that position. Well, we'll let this uh, debate carry on amongst um, over, over barbecues on Sydney's North Shore. But I suspect where you are in Brisbane, uh, constitutional reform is not the thing keeping most people awake at night. Uh, I read in Queensland that there is a housing crisis and that Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has announced a summit to address this so-called housing crisis, a shortage of rental property in particular that's driving up rents even faster than the inflation. In a nutshell, what's behind this uh, rental property shortage as it appears to be and, and why is it concerning people so much up there? You're right to say people are concerned with the immediate needs of everyday life in Queensland, and I would suggest most of the, the country is in that boat. The problem with the summit that's been called by Premier Palaszczuk to deal with the short supply of housing is that it is in substantial part being driven by changes that she and her team have made to policy in recent times. And I'm referring here to changes to the assessment of um, liability for land tax in Queensland. Now, for those of your viewers who haven't been following it, the changes that have been made by Queensland Labor are to charge a person's land tax liability on the basis not just of the properties they hold um, in Queensland and their value, which is the usual way, but to also take into account in the calculation the value of property held in other places, in other states. That has the effect of requiring people who aren't Queenslanders and who hold property in Queensland and elsewhere to pay higher rates of tax than Queenslanders. All of this adds up to two things that are significant, I think, in the present time. The first is to say it's a disincentive to invest in what would become rental properties in Queensland, hence the shortage of properties that people are facing. It's also another kick in the guts to the tourism sector. It should be the case that Queensland is the destination of choice for the Sydney or, or Melbourne family with a bit of extra coin who, who want to have a holiday place. It should be on the Gold Coast. It should be in Noosa. It should be in Caloundra. But with this extra land tax slug, there's now a disincentive to put that money into Queensland and more of a reason to put it elsewhere. All of that means less property on the market and that means higher prices and lower availability for people who need to rent. Of course, the Premier would have us believe, of course, that none of this is her government's fault, that uh, these things are forces visited from outside and that none of her policy decisions have done any, anything other than bring more joy, prosperity and contentment to everybody from Tweed Heads to Cape York. And yet we can see here that the, the government policy even sometimes well-intentioned policy, and I don't think increasing land tax can ever be well-intentioned, 
has a real consequence. It has a cost that's often borne further down the chain uh, by people who mm. uh, you know, don't deserve to be treated this way. And governments need to think much longer and harder about unintended consequences of what they do, don't you think? Look, I do think that's right. And as usual with Queensland Labor, it's been a shrewd electoral decision. They've said the extra tax won't be borne by Queenslanders. And so the people who are voting for them aren't going to have more out of their pocket in their land tax bill. But as you know, and as you've alluded to just a moment ago, that's only part of the story. And when you combine it with the fact that it makes availability and the cost of rentals go up so much, um, then it does have a real tangible cost for punters. Combine that with the policies they have that are about locking up land, about preventing um, the opening up of new tracts of land for development, for housing, um, and the pro, um, I'll put it in inverted commas, environment policies, but they're really just anti-development, anti-agriculture and anti-industry. You're also taking away the job opportunities of the very same people who are bearing the cost of those higher rents. There does need to be a much more holistic approach here and a housing crisis summit ain't going to cut it when the person who's convening it is the problem. You're talking absolute common sense, of course, as usual, but you're kicking against the zeitgeist, aren't you? The last three years we've seen governments expand their role, state and federally, understandably perhaps in the face of a pandemic. But what worries me, Amanda, is that this expansion of government does not seem to be temporary. Governments have positioned themselves as the people to solve all our problems in the pandemic and foolishly the voters are going along with that. Well, it's incumbent upon people like me to help members of the community understand the dangers that come with that approach. Um, and if that effort isn't successful, ultimately and sadly, Australians will feel in their own life experience the consequence of that overreach. Um, I don't want to be dramatic about that, but whether it's in your pocket, whether it's in your personal freedoms, whether it's in your ability to speak your mind, government overreach has practical consequences in the everyday lives of people like you, me, Joe and Jane, um, and we can't underestimate the effect that that has not just on our economy but also on our culture and our individual freedoms. Yeah, and uh, if I can quote from Robert Menzies, always the man to go back to on these issues, he said in 1969, the greatest function of a democratic government is to create a climate climate in which enterprise will flourish and productivity will increase. I'll just read that again. The greatest function of a democratic government is to create a climate in which enterprise will flourish and productivity will increase. I might, if I was picking picking argument with, with the great Sir Robert, I'd say perhaps the greatest function of government is to keep our borders secure and to keep, you know, uh, nasty people at bay. But in terms of running the country, that's it, isn't it? It's not for the government to create the enterprise, it's to allow an environment where individual enterprise flows. Pretty simple, I would have thought. Well, I, I think government is at its most effective when it sticks to those core purposes. Do those few basic but important things well and the rest flows. In contrast, if we spend our time running around trying to, for example, protect individuals from the obvious consequences of their actions so that those consequences aren't felt. We don't just 
end up with a, a huge bill um, as a taxpaying body, but we also deny us as individuals the opportunity to grow and become smarter and stronger and more prosperous on an individual level. And that is surely not just a part of prosperity, but it's a part of the meaning of life, you know, making our mistakes, learning from them, doing better and learning about how to channel those experiences into a wider community. Um, we can't protect people from um, what should be some of the richness of life. But you, you know the reality of politics. You, you've been through that process. You've both entered the Senate and you've, you've lost your place in the Senate. How hard is it for a politician these days to go out there and admit that you can't solve everything and actually the government is not the answer to your problems. What the government should be doing is restoring the incentive for people to solve problems themselves. Can you get a, is that a message that will find a receptive audience or are people just beyond that now? It is difficult to communicate it um, because every time um, an individual person has a story of hardship, whether that is due to um, choices they have made or external factors, um, you can't help but have sympathy for a person experiencing difficulty. It is very difficult in those circumstances to say, but we're not going to step in here because what we know is whether or not you cause this situation, the way you find your path out of it is actually the key to your future strength emotionally, economically um, and socially. It's a very difficult thing to do, but it is in many ways what as parents we try to do for our children. Um, and if you think about governments and electorates in a similar kind of way, the um, responsible parent is prepared to say no uh, when it is for the right reason and in the interests of um, the people they serve. It's a difficult thing to do, but it is fundamentally oftentimes the right thing to do. Just finally returning to Queen Elizabeth II, the late Queen Elizabeth II, you, you, I've been amazed with how, how much ordinary Australians have been talking about this, thinking about this, having conversations, you know, joining services in her honour as, as I did last night here in Sydney. It, it, it's unusual, isn't it? Because we think of her as somebody distant, a long way from us. And yet here's an interesting statistic, which we uncovered in polling this week. 11.8% of Australians, 11.8% of Australians say they have either met or seen the Queen face to face. I mean, it might just be joining a queue or watching from the side of the road. 11.8, so that's 3 million Australians, by my calculations, have actually had that personal contact with the Queen. Not so distant after all, I would suspect. Did you ever have that pleasure? I didn't. I wish I could say I did but see her passing by and yet I'll love her till I die. But my affection is nevertheless very strong. Um, Queen Elizabeth led a life, uh, and it's quite an accomplishment, I think, to do this, to convey great humility despite that position and all of its trappings, um, to embody the kind of um, level-headed common sense wisdom um, that we want to see as part of Australian culture. And 
I've really been touched by the number of mothers who have said to me in the last week, our little girls have lost a great role model. And when we look around at role models, it's not often that you would think of somebody who is born into a position, um, you know, in in a hereditary way, but yet by her conduct, by her kindness and by her steadfast resolve to do her duty despite difficulty, she has managed to become an incredible role model and um, I hope she will be remembered in Australia's history um, for those wonderful qualities. I'm sure she will. An outstanding woman, outstanding role model, I think, to all of us uh, from that wartime generation, the generation like my parents who just wouldn't complain and just got on with it, I think. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for joining us again on Battleground and let's catch up again next week. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. That was Amanda Stoker, former senator and now distinguished fellow of the Menzies Research Centre. You might remember last week I mentioned the gala dinner which the Menzies Research Centre was due to be hosting this week in Canberra to mark the 50th anniversary of the great Neville Bonner's arrival in the Senate. Well, the dinner was due to be heard last Tuesday, September the 13th. It was postponed in the light of the Queen's death and it's been rescheduled to Tuesday, September 27th. And we'd love to see you there if you can make it, Tuesday, September 27th in Old Parliament House from 7pm. Amanda will be there along with Peter Dutton, Jacinta Price and a whole host of other people whose names you'd instantly recognise. You can book your place by Googling the Menzies Research Centre and clicking on Events. The URL, if you want to take notes, is www.menziesrc.org slash events. When it comes to dealing with a difficult challenge, like, say, a global pandemic, it's the easiest thing in the world to be wise after the event. My next guest can rightly claim to have been wise during the event. Dr Jayanta Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and director of Stanford's Centre for Demography and the Economics of Health and Ageing. Unusually for a public health expert, Dr Bhattacharya also has a PhD in economics, which puts him in the rare position of being able to consider the costs of public health measures, as well as the supposed benefits. Jay Bhattacharya joins me now from California. Jay, welcome to, to Battleground. I, I believe you're, you're coming to Australia next week. Tell us about that. Your first visit here or? No, I've been, been to Australia a few times before the pandemic to give quiet academic talks. Never, never, spoke, to, uh, never spoke to the press before. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to the visit to Melbourne and then uh, Sydney for a short time. Uh, in, um, I think I have scheduled six or seven or eight talks in five days. So it should be, should be exhausting but fun. Looking forward to it. You're starting off, of course, in the lockdown capital of the world, Melbourne. Uh, If anybody wants more information on Jay's visit, by the way, you can go to www.drjayinoz.com. I'll just spell that out. It's Dr. D-R-J-J-A-Y, Inoz, I-N-O-Z.com, and uh, find out more. Uh, Jay, um, let's get the background of this first. Let's cast our minds back to January 2020. And the first horrifying pictures from Wuhan of an authoritarian communist regime locking people in their homes to stop the spread of COVID-19. We looked at those images and we said, thank God that could never happen here. Uh, But then Hmm. March the 15th, 2020, just two months later, this report appears in the LA Times. 
Quote, the government's top infectious disease expert, Dr Anthony Fauci, said Sunday he would like to see aggressive measures such as a 14-day national shutdown that would require Americans to hunker down even more to slow the spread of coronavirus. Fauci said the country should do as much as we possibly could, even if officials are criticised for, quote, overreacting, close quote. He said he'd raised the issue of measures such as the shutdown with the Trump administration and said it had been open to his ideas. What was your reaction when that news came across? My first thought was to the, the harms that were going to be done to children from that. Children would have to stay home from school. Uh, even short interruptions of schooling, of course, can result in long-term harm to children, both in their health and, and well-being. That, I knew from decades of social science work that people had done, uh, you know, good social science work. I, I was thinking about children that uh, were, were uh, abused and often the abuse is picked up in schools. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if you have kids stay home at school, you're going to have abuse that's going to happen that's not going to get picked up. I was thinking about all of the, the, the people with heart disease and cancer and that wouldn't get treatment. I mean, I, my first thought went to the idea that public health can't just be focused on one disease. Uh, my second thought was, do we really know how deadly the disease actually is? We, I mean, it looks like we knew. We said there was three, four percent mortality, uh, but in fact, we didn't know. It seemed like a highly infectious respiratory disease infecting a lot of people. That and we didn't really have a lot of testing available. So it seemed to me there were a lot of people that were infected that we just didn't know about, and so the death rate was less than it, than it appeared to be, and uh, the disease was more widespread than it appeared to be. Um, both of which turned out to be true uh, in the United States. Uh, the second actually turned out not to be true in Australia. Australia didn't actually have a lot of spread at the time, um, in part because it arrived in your in your in your uh, in your summertime mm. when it's COVID low season, whereas it arrived in our on our winter time when it was COVID high season. Um, I mean, sort of just the geography, I, I think, set down set the paths of of the United States and Australia down different directions, um, which is a, a very interesting thing. We might talk about more about that later. Of course, you raised those concerns you've just mentioned in an article in the Wall Street Journal in which you, you point out, of course, that, that when they talk about, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when they talk about a death rate, the number of proportion of people that die having caught COVID, they actually don't know how many people have caught COVID. They just know how many people have tested positive. But of course, there's a lot of people out there we think uh, are carrying the virus, probably don't realise it. That's That was the essence of your criticism, wasn't it? And it's a pretty fair scientific argument, but there was a lot of pushback even then. Yeah, there was. Uh, I mean, you know, and the way you resolve that kind of pushback is by running a study, uh, which is what I did. I, I ran two studies, uh, one in Santa Clara, California, and one in Los Angeles, California. Uh, both studies, essentially, the idea was to look and see how many people in the population had evidence of antibodies to COVID. Uh, antibodies you know, you know the, there was some controversy then over whether it induced immunity. Of course it does. Um, but no one disagreed that if you had a specific antibody, that was evidence that you'd been infected and recovered, or, or at least been infected. Um, and so we did that. We found 50 times more infections than cases in both uh, cities in California, Santa Clara County, California, Los Angeles County, California. 50 times more infections than cases. That meant that about 3 or 4% of the population had already been infected in early April 2020. That meant the United States was never going to get to zero. The disease mm -hmm. was going to spread widely. 
not, no matter what we did. It was highly infectious disease spreading outside of our, our knowledge. Um, second, it was like early, it was obviously early, only three or 4% of the population. And then third, the death rate was something like 0.2% in the community, 99.8% survival from infection, rather than the three or 4% that the uh, death rate that the World Health Organization was suggesting. Meanwhile, we, we in Australia and New Zealand, we, we, we come into line, we have the, the population-wide lockdown. Let's fast forward to October 4, 2020. Let me set the scene. The town of Great Barrington in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. Berkshire County, sorry, Massachusetts. Sounds nice. I'd like to go there. 7,000 people, apparently. Uh, you gather there with Dr. Martin Kuldorf, a professor of medicine at Harvard University, who is also a biostatistician and epidemiologist. And also Dr. Sunita Gupta, professor at Oxford University, who's an epidemiologist with expertise in immunology, vaccine development, and mathematical modeling of infectious diseases. I say all that just to show this, the, the quantity of credentials that you had between you. And together you formulate the great Barrington Declaration, which said what? It, it said that there's a thousandfold difference in the risk of death from this disease. Older people have a very high risk of death, four, five, six, seven, eight percent, depending on how old you are. Um, and uh, younger people, especially children, have a very low risk of death. Uh, lockdowns are incredibly harmful, especially to, to young people, but really to everybody. I, the isolation and the, and the dislocation caused by lockdowns, we've already seen it in the six months that had passed since the beginning of the pandemic, that lockdowns were harmful. Um, so you, we put those two together and said, look, uh, what, what should we do? We should devote our effort and our resources to protecting older people, focus protection of the vulnerable. And then as far as the rest of the population, especially children, don't disrupt their lives. For them, the lockdowns are more harmful than COVID, and it's not ethical to harm them. And so that was the Great Branch Declaration, focus protection of the vulnerable, uh, and and then lift the lockdowns for the rest of the population. Now, people would still, you know, they, they you, you you tell people don't go visit grandma when the cases are floating around or if you're sick. I mean, you, you can give sensible advice and people would still adopt that sensible advice. I'm not saying we didn't say let the virus rip. We're saying don't impose lockdowns on people that are harmed by them for no for no discernible purpose. Um and then eventually what would happen is that a sufficiently large number of the fraction of the population, either with vaccines or with, with uh, infection recovery, would be infected, hopefully in the low-risk population, such that the disease, although it still could spread, um, reduced its lethality and harm. Herd immunity would be reached. That was the, that was the Great Barrington Declaration. So that declaration gets coverage right around the world. And not in the mainstream media, of course, not here in Australia at any rate, but on a network of websites, social media pages, podcasts and so forth that we'd learned by then was where the real news was to be found. Here in Australia, I read it with a sense of vindication because a targeted lockdown and the end of emergency regulations was exactly what we'd called for at the Menzies Research Centre in a report three months earlier, a report, I must say, that had been studiously ignored. Uh, yet rather than the debate your proposals, the medical and political establishment in the US, led by Dr. Anthony Fauci, unleashed ex an extraordinary propaganda campaign to shut you down. Just let me go on a little bit more with this question to, to fill in the background. So in January this year, emails are released under Freedom of Information, uh, one from Francis Collins. He's a director of the National Institutes for Health, 
to Dr. Fauci. Collins describes the authors of the Barrington Declaration, that's you, Kuldorf and Gupta, as fringe epidemiologists. He says your proposal is getting a lot of attention and, quote, there needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. Your reaction to that email you tweeted, now I feel what it's like to be the subject of a propaganda attack by my own government. What was it like? <laughs> it's absolutely extraordinary. I have to say, because I, I had long admired both Francis Collins and Tony Fauci. They had led distinguished scientific careers from which I, I personally have learned and, and benefited. Uh, to have them treat a, an idea that was so clearly in the mainstream, tens of thousands of scientists, Nobel Prize winners, reasonable people uh, with a tremendous expertise had signed the declaration. A million people ended up, as nearly a million people have ended up signing it now. Um, it was clearly a mainstream position, but they wanted to, to create this illusion that it was a it was a fringe position. He called, I mean, fringe epidemiologist. By the way, uh, Tony, I have a card that my, my it says fringe epidemiologist at the bottom now. Um, I've, <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. I look forward to getting um, one of those next week when you're over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing is about this is that it it uh, it showed the desperation because they signed they wrote that four days after we wrote the de declaration. It was getting enormous attention from the from people around the world, and it they viewed that as a threat to their authority. And so they had to they they were, they, they had two choices. They could have either engaged in a in a in a good faith discussion. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe they're wrong. We, 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 maybe we're somewhere in between. We would have, it, it resulted in some change in policy. Or they could have mounted a propaganda campaign to try to destroy us. Hmm. And they unfortunately chose the latter, uh, which is a deeply unscientific thing to do. Um, uh, not, not particularly collegially, either, I have to say. And then I, get, I started getting reporters calling me, asking me why I want to let the virus rip. What, what was it I had against old people that I wanted to let them die? Even though I, wa I was calling for focused protection of older people, calling for a conversation about how to protect older people the best. Um, it was absolutely extraordinary. It was a very stressful time. Um, but on the other hand, it, it, I think, shattered the illusion of consensus. Mm. So many people read it and thought, okay, you know, this is what I was thinking all along. Um, this makes so much sense. And the reason why is because it's not, it wasn't even a new idea, Tony. It was an old idea. It was, the, it was how we dealt with a century of pandemics, of respiratory virus pandemics in the, in the past successfully. And so uh, when you have Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, Nobel Prize winners signing on to this, that's why it got attention. It was, I mean, I never in my life cared about Stanford. I mean, the fact that Stanford is fine and it's a nice place to be, but the fact of Stan like it's Stanford is not was never a big deal to me. But the idea that that you could call people at Stanford, at at Harvard, at Oxford Fringe, was just laughable. Um, mm. And it was it was it, it it shows you the desperation that 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 the scientific bureaucrats had to get to get their way. They were calling for something extraordinary, and they need they didn't have the extraordinary consensus that they needed behind it. Well, it felt to me at the time that you were arguing the mainstream public health position. I mean, in Australia, we've had some very poor public health campaigns. We've also had some very effective ones. Let me give you one. We had a, a public health issue in this country uh, some years back with a lot of children who were dying in backyard swimming pools. Now, I think the Fauci approach to that would have been to go and order everybody to close down and concrete over every swimming pool. Instead, we did the sensible thing. We passed laws and enforced laws that made people put 
fences around those swimming pools, i.e. Yeah. You, you protect the vulnerable in that local situation. So there was nothing outlandish in what you said. So how come, can you explain this to me? I, I really hope you can. How come Dr. Anthony Fauci comes up with what is a seemingly uh, novel policy to a dealing with a pandemic back then in March of 2020, which says we're going to lock the entire population down. And not only does that become the gospel in the United States, but essentially the worldwide gospel. It's what we do here. In fact, I think we did it in the city of Melbourne better than any country in the world. Why did that take hold? How did he have so much influence? I mean, I think uh, the original origin of the lockdown was Wuhan, China. January 2020 arrives, the, the world looks at China, Tony Fauci looks at China and says, oh, this worked. They locked down for a month and the disease disappeared. And they had in the back of their heads this model of SARS-1 where a local lockdown in China seemed to work, make, it, make the disease disappear. Although in Toronto, it disappeared without SARS-1, without a lockdown. Um, and so he, they, they're looking at that and then they compare against Italy where this huge number of cases and a seeming disaster. And for Tony Fauci, that was enough. We, could lock, we should lock down, we should do what China does, no matter what the civil liberties violations, no matter what the harm we did to young people and children, no matter what, what the harm we did to people with cancer or, or diabetes or, or, or any other uh, health need, none of that mattered. All that mattered was elimination of COVID, eradication of COVID if at all possible. He was blind to the lockdown harms in March and he recommended it. And the problem for him was that six months later in October, it had obviously failed. The disease was still spreading. The harms of the lockdown had, were already evident. And yet, if he were to back down and say, oh, gosh, I made a mistake, it would look like he'd, he'd, made, he'd launched the world into this horrible error. And, I mean, like a humble person would say, yeah, I made that error. Uh, I, you know, I, I would, in good faith, it was a mistake. I was, I was wrong. Uh, uh, someone who's someone like Tony Fauci, who's been in this high position for 30, 40 years, um, his reaction was essentially to double down, say, oh, we just didn't try hard enough. You just did, you, uh, the populace didn't do exactly what I wanted you to do. Uh, you didn't lock down hard enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we just do that, then the disease will go away. Yep. Uh, we went through that here, sure enough. Uh, and in New Zealand too, even worse, they were pursuing this zero COVID strategy, although they'd often deny it, but that was the logic of where they were going, right? And uh, so by the end of uh, 2021, we've done pretty well here. Case numbers are pretty low. We open the borders, we relax, and suddenly the case numbers go rocketing. In fact, the case numbers in Australia, I dare say you follow these figures. The number of cases per million population is now higher in Australia and New Zealand than it is in the United States and most European countries. Fortunately, fewer deaths. But that whole zero COVID strategy was a total mirage, wasn't it? From the early days, as you point out, it was impossible to stop the spread of the virus. Yeah, I mean, I think just for one, uh, the, the virus spreads through animal populations. 80% of white-tailed deer in the United States have had COVID uh, as of end of not 2020. Um, so I, th I think um, that zero COVID policy was never going to be a permanent policy. Unfortunately for Australia, the early success with zero COVID trapped Australia into a path that made it almost impossible to get out. Uh, it even, I think, delayed the vaccination campaign in Australia. So you, you had uh, the vaccines come available in late 2020, 
And not until September 2021 does the vaccination campaign really get going in earnest in Australia. Um, a huge delays. And, you know, people were, I guess, com uh, comfortable with like, oh, well, the, vi the virus isn't here. Why do we have to rush to get the, the vaccines out? Imagine an alternate reality where the vaccines had come available in Australia in January, February 20, 2021. You had vaccinated your older population so that the high risk people had a lower risk of death if infected. And then you'd opened up. You would have avoided almost a year and a half of shutdown that caused tremendous damage to the health of the population. Uh, and COVID would have spread just as it did. And you would have had actually probably the same number of COVID deaths. The reason why you have had lower COVID deaths per person is because the vaccination campaign was successful. Why was that vaccination campaign uh, delayed for so long at tremendous cost to the population? Well, let's talk about the vaccines, right? Right from the very earliest days, our government was talking about the developing of a vac the development of a vaccine is the only way out of this crisis. And you warned at the time that this could take years, but fortunately or unfortunately, we got them much quicker than that. And then we move into the coercion phase. People lose their jobs and livelihoods for declining to take the vaccine here and in the US. In fact, unvaccinated Australians are still not permitted to enter your country, even now. Um, President Joe Biden, of course, complained about how slowly people were taking up the vaccines and said our patience is wearing thin. Uh, there is this coercive attitude to the vaccine, a vaccine which, as you say, uh, may be highly useful and effective for people in the vulnerable category, those perhaps over 70 or with comorbidities, but is, is very unlikely to do much to save the life of, say, a 25-year-old. Why, why that yeah. coercion and why was it justified or was it not justified? It certainly was not justified, and I think it's created this skepticism of other vaccines, which is quite unfortunate from a public health point of view. Uh, the, the reason, I think, for the coercion was a mistake made by the public health bureaucrats. The, 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 medical the clinical trials of the vaccines did not demonstrate that the vaccine would stop disease transmission. Uh, you need, if you're going to achieve herd immunity with a vaccine uh, where the disease stops trans transmitting, to stop circulating, you need a vaccine that stops the disease from circulating. Um, you need a, a vaccine that doesn't uh, allow you to get infected. But in fact, this vaccine doesn't have that problem. I personally was vaccinated in April of 2021 and then got COVID in August of 2021, four months later. That has been the, the, the you know, a tremendous number of people have had that same exact uh, experience. Um, so you, but the public health authorities looked at the data and, and, and they just made a guess. They said, if we get 70, 80% of the population vaccinated, the disease will go away, it'll disappear. That was just wrong. It wasn't true. It's why they, and that's why they adopted coercion. They had to try to force people for whom the vaccine had very little benefit to be vaccinated um, in order to get to their herd immunity dreams, whereas uh, the right way to use the vaccine is focus protection, protect older people with the vaccine, um, then lift the lockdowns. If other people want the vaccine, then later after that, fine, let them have the vaccine. There's not, it's, but it should be a voluntary thing, certainly not a coercive thing. What happened instead is a really heartbreaking creation of a two-class society, a division between clean and unclean, you know, a good and evil almost. And it's led to tremendous discrimination against, you know, people who just were, for whatever reason, skeptical of vaccine or, or think that they didn't, didn't think the vaccine would benefit them very much, which probably was true if they were younger. 
they overpromised, didn't they? I mean, this is the point. We got the very clear impression here. It's actually hard when you go back and look at transcripts to pin this down. But most people here would have had the very firm impression that once the vaccine was there, that would stop transmission. It didn't. Not only that, but then we had to have a booster and another booster until we're about, you know, 40 percent of our body weight is Pfizer. Right. That, that's that's the pattern we're in, which may be the nature of a vaccine of that kind. But we were never warned about that. And I think people now, because of that, feel less trusting of public health, not more trusting. Would that be fair? I mean, I think that's entirely fair. I think public health overpromised on the lockdowns. They overpromised on the vaccines. The, and public health used its uh, used its power to violate the civil liberties of Australians on a grand scale. Uh, the right to worship, the right to speak, the right to move from one one uh, you know one place to another uh, were all violated. The right to an education, the 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 right to to ha even bury your dead. Uh, where I think was violated often um, for the right for expats to come home and visit family, the the right the right to uh, to to uh, uh, almost every single basic civil liberty was violated, uh, and uh, even the right to get treatment for cancer for uh, for all these all these like basic civil liberties that I think Australians take for granted were essentially abrogated in the name of public health. It's it's no wonder that people no longer trust public health. Jay, we're, we're running fast out of time. I'm looking forward to pick up the threads of this conversation with you next week in the flesh here in Australia. There's a lot we could explore. But just quickly, uh, there's a widespread view here in Australia that however hard things have been over the, the last few years and however, much, however keen Australians seem to be to throw out the last federal government, Australia can take pride in handling the COVID-19 crisis better than most Bill Gates said in February, if every country in the world does what Australia does, you wouldn't be calling it a pandemic. Is he right? No, he's wrong. I mean, Australia is a special case. It's an it was it's an island in one sense and in, in a real very real sense. Um, it has limited uh, number of airport international airports compared to you know Europe, for instance. Um, and the the main thing the, the main thing that Australia did right was that it, it had the great uh, wisdom located in the southern hemisphere. And when the virus arrived in your summer or winter, um, it's not—it's just not—it's just not right to call what Australia and, and and actually what got Australia out of the pandemic, out of the lockdowns was the development of vaccine that could not have been tested inside Australia. You needed cases to happen somewhere on Earth to test whether the vaccine could work. Uh, it was so in a sense, it's a policy that's specific to Australia. Uh, I, I don't. I think Australia did, did did do better than some countries because of the fortune of where it's located. Um, but at the same time, the lockdown harms have been tremendous in Australia. Uh, we shouldn't sugarcoat that. I mean, the, 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 I mean, I, and I don't mean to compare it negatively to the U.S. I mean, I think the U.S. also had tremendous lockdown harms. My children didn't go to school for a year and a half, um, almost. It was so. It's 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 just a tragic thing where I think the world handled this pandemic very, very poorly everywhere. Well, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to seeing you next week here in Australia. Thank you. Looking forward. And for more information about that visit, just once again, go to drjinoz.com, www.drjayinoz.com. Thank you for tuning into Battleground in this historic week for the Commonwealth. As we remember with fondness, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, 
and proclaim our new king, King Charles III. If you have anything you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to email me at nickcater at adh.tv. That's nickcater at adh.tv. Well, you had a lot to say about the current push for a republic, which is a rather timely discussion that we touched on last week. Brian says, if the Greens want to be influential on this republic issue, get yourselves elected as a majority government. Stop sniping from a very small minority believing you are important. Well said, Brian. The Greens won just 13% of the vote at the last election. Let's remind ourselves, although you wouldn't know that if you followed the saturation coverage of every Green utterance on our taxpayer-funded ABC. Kim writes, Forgive me for asking this, but how do you think Green Senator Maureen Farquhar would describe her Pakistani heritage? Her family chose Australia for very good reasons. A Western democracy with freedom of speech, a wonderful, vibrant and unique culture, truly democratic elections and welcoming to all peoples. For a horrible racist empire, we haven't done too badly and even tolerate antics which denigrate fellow Australians. She managed to be elected to a member of this terrible colonised country. How frequently do the most victimised people in society occupy some of the most elite and privileged positions? John had a few words on plant-based meat and the demonisation of the agricultural industry. He says, Highly processed plant-based meat doesn't sound that healthy and good for us, especially when these green types keep telling us to dump processed foods. How much energy is being used to process this muck and what additives are being used to colour and flavour it? Remember when the Queensland cane farmers were demonised for polluting the reef with their, with their chemical and soil runoff? Suddenly it appears that urban runoff is the culprit. And of course, the Greens are falling over themselves to say sorry to the farmers. A little bit of hypocrisy from the Greens. I don't think you're going to get much attention there. I also received a kind email from Bruce this week about my discussion with Stephen Javora about the decline of Christianity. He writes, Greatly appreciated your discussion with Dr Stephen Javora on Christianity and the religion of woke. I felt he explained the issues brilliantly and look forward to hearing him on again. Battleground is... Uh, it, it, it's very good to see you have a show on ATH-TV. Have, download, have downloaded the app and all the current podcasts. Thanks for being another voice for common sense, although I worry where Labour's ideologies will take us. Thank you, Bruce, for those kind and encouraging words. I'll be continuing that discussion with Dr Stephen Javour, I'm sure, in future episodes. And also with Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby, who will be on Battleground sometime very soon. Well, that's just about it for the night. Thank you, of course, to the great production team here at ADH TV, to Jack, to Jack, to Jake, to Amy, my producer. And thank you for watching Battleground. Remember to send your comments and queries to nickcater at adh.tv. I'll see you all next time.